Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Happy to be with you from Wimbledon. It is day 10. Women's semifinals are underway. We've got Alina Svitolina and Simona Halep battling on center court. And that'll be followed by Serena Williams and Barbara Streetseva. So some excitement around the grounds today. And of course, tomorrow, mammoth semifinal blockbuster between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Also have Novak Djokovic and Roberto Batista Agu on the men's side in the semifinals. So a big weekend of tennis here at Wimbledon. Caught up with a very special guest, former world number five and current director of tennis at IMG Academy, Jimmy Arias, joined the podcast today. He's out here overseeing the performance of some of his juniors. In fact, two of them had just reached the semifinals. That was... Shintaro Mochizuku, whose name you're going to hear me butcher a little later in the program, and also Martin Dam, a six foot six, 15-year-old that can serve upwards of 130 miles per hour. So some true talent at the IMG Academy. Arias took over as the director earlier this year. He spoke with us a little bit about his role at the academy, his upbringing at Nick Balateri's academy back in the day, and of course touched upon some of his biggest moments as a pro, including the 1984 U.S. Open run to the semifinals and his run to the quarterfinals at Roland Garros and when he eventually would face and lose to John McEnroe. Let's get right to that interview with Jimmy Arias now. Well, I'm pleased to be with Jimmy Arias, director of tennis at IMG Academy, former world number five. Hello, Jimmy. How you doing? I'm doing really good. It's nice to see you here at Wimbledon. It's the first time since 1987, I believe, that I came to Wimbledon. I never... What? Wimbledon wasn't my surface, and I was... Back in the day when it was the average system for your ranking, so every time you lost a first round, a one-pointer hurt your ranking... I know those are just horrible, ridiculous excuses for not showing up. But I also played clay from Nice through the French, which was nine weeks every year. And I'd go home to the States with the intention of coming back and playing Wimbledon. And then as it was time for the flight to come back to Europe again in a week and a half or so, I always, ooh, my leg hurts or my arm hurts (laughs) and find a way (laughs) to pull out of the event. So I'd regret it now. Um, because do, I did huh? make a fourth round, so it wasn't like I couldn't play at right. all on grass. Um, so, yes, I regret it now, but I was so tired and burned out I just at that time of the year that yeah. I just felt like I needed a break. And, of course, you come here at 2019, you look around, and you hear all the rumors about how slow the surface is. This would be suited for, for a clay court player like yourself, well, right? Now the ball bounces up. The thing was it didn't bounce at all. It's just right. the ball skidding low and so I hit heavy topspin. That was perfect for everyone in the, right in their strike zone, really, on the grass in those days. So, um, yes, I would have played it for sure if it was today's grass. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about your new gig, director of tennis at IMG. That's been, what was it, last October you took over? Last October, I, I actually started out as director of player development. Right. And then in March, they turned me into full full-on director oh okay so it's sort of i I had a two-role start there to that and you're delegating a little bit more you're kind of overseeing and working with coaches working with what lots of lots of uh, student athletes 200 or so right yes i over 200 i started out sort of going from group to group and i i kind of just mostly talked to the coaches um and i would 
I would first ask the coaches, this is what I see with this kid. What do you think? Is it okay if I talk to him about it? I just wanted to make sure I wasn't stepping on anybody's toes when I first came in. And, and almost always they agreed with me and, and I worked with the kids. Um, and now one of the things I'm trying to do is trying to make it a little bit more competitive than it has been. So I feel like you need to learn how to win how to win matches. That's, that's why we're playing the game, not to perfect your forehand cross-court stroke or where a ball's fed to you the same way and your stroke yeah. looks beautiful. That's all important, but not as important as figuring out how you win points and how the best sort of game for your style, for your body type. Um, so, you know, we had a kid that was one of the better players but he was tall, lanky with a big serve, pretty big forehand, fairly flat ground strokes, and they were trying to turn him into a, a looping player. But he didn't move well enough to be a, to be a guy that hits the ball heavy. Right. He needed to dictate from the start so you don't run him. That kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm just trying to get players to figure out how to win. It drives me nuts today in today's game when I watch somebody like, for instance, Stan Wawrinka, uh -huh. who is better than you everybody pretty much that he plays once the baseline rally is in play. If you're in even terms in a baseline rally with Vavrinka, you're in all kinds of trouble. Yep. So how do you avoid that? You avoid that because his return is so weak. It's just a slow floating chip it on is, both sides, right. forehand and backhand. So you serve and volley and at least force him to be uncomfortable hitting returns or at least twice a game or three times a game so he's not sure he doesn't get that comfort zone of just i'm putting the ball in i'm going to start the point mm -hmm. um tennis yeah. iq tennis iq is zero in today's game these guys are great players don't get me wrong i couldn't compete right They're bigger stronger faster hit the ball incredibly well um but they don't know what's yeah, yeah, going yeah. on as far as breaking down their opponent yeah Oh, I'm going to circle back to a little bit more talk about that, specifically servant volley and the lack of servant volley at Wimbledon. But, but um, before I do that, how about talk about some of your kids from IMG that are doing quite well here at Wimbledon? We just saw Martin Dam win. We just saw Mochizuki. Moshi, uh, yeah, Shintaro Mochizuki. Yeah, the key looked great in his quarterfinals. So both those kids are into the semis, and you've got a few other guys. Um, who else do we have Toby here? Kodat. Toby Kodat was a Roland Garros semifinalist. You have a... Philip Giano from Romania. I'm not sure what happened with him. So tell us a little bit about these guys. Um, well, we really are excited about our group of 2003, which is Toby Kodat, Shintaro, and Martin Dam. Those, those three, all born in 2003. Martin Dam's still 15, and they're all top 10 in the world ITF right now, those three guys that I just wow. told Dam you about. Wow, Dam is 15. Yes, Dam is 15. He's 6'6", so that's uh, can't really teach 6'6", but uh -huh. he... I think as far as, first of all, what I was saying earlier about tennis IQ, Shintaro Mochizuki has the greatest tennis IQ I've seen in years. As far as you watch him play, if you break down his strokes, his serve is 93 miles an hour. His forehand, he can't really break an egg with his forehand. His backhand is a thing of beauty, hits it where he wants anytime, but he uses your pace against you. So. You hit the ball 100 miles an hour to him. He takes it early, redirects it. He feels a little bit like John McEnroe to me when I used to play McEnroe. I remember it's funny. When you're playing, you don't have as good of a sense of what's going on as when you're watching. Yeah. So I would play McEnroe, and I would smash a forehand. 
and he would take no swing and just bunt it. But I'm the one running and out of <laughs> position the whole time. I'm producing all the pace, and he's just jerking me around the court. I mean, it was it was annoying to play. I felt like rope-a-dope sort of thing when I played McEnroe, and that's what Shintaro's doing to these kids. The way he plays, I think it can translate into the pros. We'll have to see. They might have too much power. They might be able to just overpower him, but the way he plays is really fun to watch. Martin Dam, as I said, you can't teach 6'6", so he serves lefty too, which so his serve is 130 miles an hour plus. I, I saw it today for the first time they played on courts with a radar gun, so I was interested to see. He hit 130s. He hit, 15 one, year he hit a 132. Um, and moves very well for his size and his age because normally when you grow that quickly, you're sort of gangly, you can't move that well. He actually moves pretty well. He's got speed, he's athletic. I expect him to to have a career on the tour. Mm. You talked, uh, I've heard you talk on Wertheim's podcast about footwork and how it's your tell, how you can tell. Because I'm always curious to know how a ju- how are these juniors going to actually pan out in the pros. But one of the things you said is watch their footwork. If it's really good, if it's really intense, intense, it it could be a nice tell for them. I actually, I kind of believe that when you're young. So yes, you obviously if you're if you're older, you have to have that, and you probably do if you're playing here. I mean, Martin Dam, I just said he moves well, but his footwork actually needs a little bit of work. Um, it's not because he's not athletic enough, but he tends to bend at the waist sometimes to reach rather than getting the outside leg sort of over to it behind the ball. So that's something we're, we're working on with, with him. Um, but it was when, when I talked about that, it was sort of I've seen seven, eight, nine-year-olds Right. playing tennis and the ones that are hitting the shot even at that age you're just rallying down the center but hitting the shot and then getting ready for the next one you can see them their feet are active in between shots yeah those are the ones that have a chance if you keep working on your game to play the ones that hit and then just stand flat-footed and watch until you hit it those ones are probably, you know, they can play high school, they can play tennis, they can right. maybe play a lower level college, but that's almost innate, or uh, I think right. something um, in your brain that tells you. Uh, I actually think it's desire, focus, you want to be, you want to be great, you want to, you're gonna be ready. Where's right. the next ball? So <laughs> it drives me crazy when I see people just stand around and look. Yeah, right. Oh. Let's go back even further. You were one of the original kids at IMG. It wasn't even IMG then, but it was Nick Boletari. And that takes me back to your comment about having it be more competitive. You guys had some serious competition going on back in the day, right? Yeah, what was interesting is I actually, I don't know if people realize this, but I sort of started Boletari's in a way (laughs) because I was the number one junior in the U.S. Every parent that played in my age group knew that my dad was crazy. (laughs) And... They didn't okay. know the story on how I ended up in Florida, but I, um, I, I went there on a vacation to the Colony Beach. Nick was a tennis director of the Colony Beach and Tennis Resort. I'd never heard of Nick. The owner of the Colony Beach is from Buffalo, so that's where I was from. So um, I went on a tennis vacation with my friends, some of the older guys that I used to play with in Buffalo, and they went up to Nick and said, look, he's a very good player. Give him someone good to play with. And Mike DePalmer, who ended up being ranked 30 in the world at some point, was three years older than me. He was ranked four in the nation in the 16s. I had just turned 13. Um, so Nick sends me out with him. 
And as soon as he sees me, he goes running on the court and he kicks Mike off the court and starts giving me a lesson. <laughs> um, and he's the opposite of my dad. My dad always told me, I'm here to tell you what you're doing wrong, not to tell you what you're doing right. Right. And Nick just told me I was great all the time. Um, and that worked I, for you. I liked hearing it because yeah. I'd only heard criticism up until that point. So that did work for me. Um, so then he invited me to, Nick did to stay at his house. He has a school that lets us out at noon. In those days, there was no such thing as homeschooling. So um, I had to go to school till four o'clock in Buffalo. Here I'm getting out four hours earlier. The weather's a little better in Sarasota than it than it is in Buffalo for most yeah, of the year. Good so, times. Yeah. So I decided to move. And then I went to Kalamazoo and talked to the top 20 kids in the nation and said, I'm going to a place get out of school at noon, we can all play together there. And literally 10 of them or so came because Nick didn't charge any of them. Mm -hmm. So Nick had an academy of all the top kids not paying, which was sort of the genius of Nick is eventually he got publicity and and then he got people that would come and pay. Um, But what made it great was we were, because we were all sort of the top level and you want, everybody wants to be the top dog we're playing matches and every match in practice felt like a match in a tournament because you didn't want to, how'd you do with Paul Anacone today? Oh, you lost really. Mm -hmm. You didn't want to hear that sort of statement from the other guys asking you how you did. So it was every day was intense. And I sort of want to get back to that figuring out how to win thing of playing matches. offer some other things in this role. You mentioned your dad, so you know about what well, the quote-unquote crazy tennis parent. Um, you've got history with Nick Boletari, which is great. So, I mean, it seems like a, it makes sense, this role. And you have a coaching history background, am I correct? Yes. I, I, so when I retired, I did start a little junior program. Right. Um, but I stopped that in about a year. Okay. Because I don't like dealing with with parents so much i like the kids but i didn't like to deal with the parents not so i decided well because i had disgruntled kids i was living in sarasota so i had basic kids that didn't like img they started at img that's why they had been there didn't like img because their kid is so good and he wasn't getting the attention that his greatness deserves i see and uh they were a little off on the greatness level of of their kids so you know anyway it was I didn't have a big enough program either, so I had 20-some kids, but they were different levels. So sometimes I had to play a little lower-level kid with a little higher-level kid, and then the uh, higher-level kid's parents would call me that night and say, why is my kid on the same court with with that guy? And that kind of stuff was happening all the time, and so I just said, you know what? I don't need this, so I stopped. I then coached a little bit with Monica. I coached Monica Salas a couple of different times, but I didn't want to travel. I had a family, so... I went with her four weeks at a time, a couple of different times, but I didn't want to keep traveling. Um, Something made you want to coach that you had it. You no, no, no. My dad, my dad's an electrical engineer, uh-huh. but he also taught. He's a professor um, of mathematics at college level, and something in my blood. I love trying to help somebody get better in something that they want to get better in and actually making a difference. Um, That makes me feel good, that always has. So all these years, I've been commentating, doing that sort of stuff, 
but I have helped many, many, many kids just for free. Jesse Pagula. Jesse Pagula. That wasn't for free, but my. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. But, but, but many just in my area. Tyler Zink. He was a kid here. He started first time I hit with him. He was nine. Okay. And I would always sort of. Not working with him every day, but I would I would help him whenever I could. And there's a couple other kids coming up. You'll see him in a couple years. Jonah Braswell. He's he'll be playing these tournaments in the next couple of years. I think he's only 14, but he's going to be there. So it's those it, those kind of kids that are fun. And even when I walk by court and I see someone when I played at Laurel Oak Country Club, it's a country club in my city, and I'd see a lady that's a 3.0 somewhat beginner and she's on the ball machine trying to hit a volley or a backhand and i can see okay it's i don't care how many you hit that's never gonna work <laughs> and yeah. so i can't help myself i go out there and i that's great i work with them so it's just i don't know it's a yeah. strange thing i like doing it and you have also insights on on the young kids the child prodigies because you were young you were the youngest guy to have an atp ranking you were like big at age 19 doing doing big things i think that 83 was one of your best years you weren't even 20 yet right yes my dad always says i peaked at 12 and there's <laughs> a little bit of truth i was an excellent 12 year old yeah. um and yes i know the feeling that that the pressure that's yes. that sort of expectations puts on you um it didn't affect me that much even though you wouldn't know it from from the way my career went um, it wasn't the expectations because I expected myself to be number one in the world. So that's, to me, that's what you need. You need to not only have this dream, but expect to make it. And if you do, you're going to get as far as you possibly can. My problem was I got to five in the world, just turned 19, and I got mono. So I was, and I kept playing couple of weeks too long so my spleen was enlarged i had to do three months a little over three months in bed really and then start Jeez. slowly playing 10 minutes 15 minutes you know nothing too strenuous and it wasn't that so much that three months off that hurt me a little bit because i didn't feel great the next year still and i started losing but really what happened was i had three months to reflect and I made two decisions that were terrible. <laughs> One of them was I was looking at a scrapbook that my mom had at all the articles and all the magazines and papers and things. And I remember thinking, if I never do anything else in tennis, I've already done great. Oh, that, that came true. I never did anything <laughs> else in tennis. I mean, I made finals of Monte Carlo. What I, I did, I That's had some, not bad. I had some good tournaments, but I never did what I was expecting from that point on you rested on your laurels a, a little bit but the other one was even worse the other one was i no longer want to be number one in the world okay because number one in the world is too famous for my taste i don't want to go to a movie and have people looking and pointing and staring at me so yeah i thought to myself i'd love to just stay five some people know me you make pretty good money i'll be five mm -hmm. and as soon as i change that i'm no longer striving to get better yep I went backwards. That's exactly what happened. I told that to Terry Pagula, Jesse Pagula's father, who owns the Bills and the Sabres. And he's the first person who told me this, and it's 100% true. He goes, I told him that story, and he goes, so you chickened out. And I go, yeah, I, I guess I kind of did. <laughs> so that informs you. I mean, we're talking about your role now. That's another thing that informs you pretty well, where 
I don't know, you have some regrets, and you can share that with these kids now, who, are, who the, maybe have a serious talents and might make those same decisions or mistakes. The one strength, one of the strengths for me is that I have run the gamut of. I, no, I didn't win a major or even make a final, just a semi. But I knew what it felt like to be a top player. I was five. I was sure I was going to win my matches most of the time. I mean, I remember one year at, at the French, I didn't want to play McEnroe in the quarters. I was seated fifth. And I didn't care if I played any others, but McEnroe, that was the year McEnroe only lost two or three matches the whole year. He was playing ridiculous. Um, and so I went, when they posted the draw on the player's locker room area, I went up, just looked for the quarters, didn't right. look at the first, second round, you know. And I look and I go, oh, come on, because I played Mac around the quarters. And one of the players turns to me and goes, what's the problem? I go, I got Mac around the quarters. And he goes, well, yeah, if you get there. And he was in my second round. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> and I hadn't even looked. Was that 84? That was 84. That was the year he, he went He went and to the finals Lendl. and played Lendl. Oh, my God. He was, a lot. What was it? He was pretty incredible that year. Even on clay, he was a servant volleyer. What was it like facing him there? The problem playing McEnroe that year especially was, you know, my serve was probably 115 miles an hour. And he would take that 115-mile-an-hour serve right off the ground and hit it in the corner slow and deep and get into the net pretty close it was constant pressure there was no moment where you felt like you could breathe you couldn't do your clay court thing no on him. I, he didn't allow it couldn't get the ball up high to him he just he's taking it early and 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 muscling me around with without any actual pace himself it was amazing it was. Let's talk more about those early days and those, those top days for you. U.S. Open semifinal. What a run. You had, I think you had Noah in the quarters. You had a couple of five-setters back-to-back and then faced Lendl. So was that one of the high points of your career? Well, coming into that U.S. Open, I put tremendous pressure on myself because I'd had a great summer. So I'd, I'd won. I'd made two finals, won a tournament, a semi, and a quarter. So I'd had five pretty solid tournaments leading up to the u.s open and i remember saying to myself which is ridiculous if i lose early if i don't do well at the u.s open then all this summer's been wasted um so i put a lot of pressure when i saw the draw and then i didn't have McEnroe, connors or lendl until the semifinals i thought i've got to make the semifinals so that yeah. was that was the pressure i put right from the start there was two problems with that one was to get there, I did have a five-setter with Joachim Nystrom in the round of 16 and then a five-setter with Noah. And, it f- and the five-setter with Noah was my favorite match of my career because it was, was a it? night match. And I wanted it so badly. And I remember kicking Nick off the court when I was warming up because I was so uptight and I'm missing a few in the warm-up just before the match. And Nick's making excuses for my misses like the wind blew that one out he's saying things like that and i go just get off the court um <laughs> and he went yeah he, he, went. he ran head. off the court um so i was that's not my normal nature so i wanted that match so badly i i can't tell you and it ends up going to five six in the fifth and i had no business being at five, six five up in the fifth because he had break points it seemed like every game when i served and he was holding easily in that fifth set and all of a sudden at 5-6, for the first time I had a little lead, 15-30 on his serve. First time I'd had a lead on his serve the whole set. And he misses a first serve, double fault, um, 
going for an ace down the tee, double fault. So 1540 double match point. And I remember thinking, I, if I play tie break, my heart's going to, like, I'm not going to be able to take this, this tension. So he misses a first serve at 1540. And I know, okay, he's not going to go for an ace again. He's going to kick this serve to my backhand, be safe with his second serve. So I'm going to have a forehand. I can run around and hit a forehand for sure. Um, so I said, all right, I'm going to hit as hard as I can right down the middle. Um, and so I run around and get the exact serve I thought. I run around. I hit it so anxiously in front of me that it goes for an angle winner. It looked like oh, nice. it looked like I meant to do it, <laughs> like I was just so clutch and calm. But it was I missed by ten feet my spot. So that that's was, amazing yeah, moment. Though. That was fun for me. And then the problem was, and this my dad would be very upset about because my first big win was Jose Luis Clerk in 1982 in Washington in the semis. He was ranked four. And I beat him in a tough match, 6-4 in the third, and I called my dad, 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 I just beat Clerk. Can you believe it? And he goes, you should beat Clerk. Who do you play now? I said, Lendl. He goes, don't even call me if you don't beat Lendl. So I was immediately, ooh, I got to beat Lendl now. That U.S. Open, I was so happy with making the goal that I'd put before the tournament right. that I didn't play with the same level of intensity. It was like I'd... I got where I'm supposed to go. I'm fine now. Yeah. I also regret that one because Lendl started choking in that match. 6-2, 4-2 up. I hold, break, hold, love 40. So triple set point for me. And he's choking. It's not because I'm playing unbelievable. All of a sudden his arms, like he can't swing. Then those days he got tight. Um, and he misses a forehand again, but somehow they call it in and we don't have the okay. challenge system. But it missed by four inches. I mean, it wasn't even that close. And I end up arguing for five minutes, end up losing that game, um, lose the tie break. And then my mind, it's a problem with my mind. I sort of, I said, well, I've come off two five setters. I'm down two sets to love against Lendl. I didn't tank, but I thought I can't win. As soon as you put that thought in your mind, you go down in a hurry. So. It's amazing. Down in a hurry in the third set. It's amazing to get these insights to, to hear, like what's inside your mind. You know, like to, to, sometimes we guess in the media about what's happening out there. Like, oh, he doesn't believe. He I can think win, that's but. actually what helps my commentating too, because I sort of, I can sense. I make predictions when I commentate. This is, he's going to double fault here, or he's, you know, look out for this. Right. And he's it toast. happens a lot. It happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do the pros work at IMG, and, and is that? Is that an important part of what you have? Like you, ha I know you have Anisimova, Whitney Osigua, other guys like Nishikori has a rep for being there. I don't know if he is anymore, but he how, is actually he is. So how yeah. crucial is it to have these guys um, be there, kind of in a mentoring role and be around the place? And I think it's awesome to have them. We're going to have more. We had fifty some pros in December. So oh, when wow. they're getting ready for Australia, um, what are some of the a names? A lot of them come. Kyle Edmund, Dan Evans, uh, Felix Oje Aliassim, oh, and Shapovalov. Yeah. Um, Azarenka was there um, so and then some not quite as high profile as those I just named but we had 50 some in all you know the Peter Polanskis the guys that are playing that are ranked 60 to 120 or mm -hmm. something like that um, and that was great for our kids because we could get our kids to, to hit with pros they must and be they jacked us, up about that well yeah I mean it it's good and bad. They don't actually get 
the best practice because the pros are using them. So you stand in a corner and move me or right. But they still get to feel what a pro's ball feels like and, and see I think the practice that helps. habits. Yes. All of that stuff. It's great. I, I loved Felix Ojeal. It seems he's got the best base. So his, his legs are so far apart, so strong in the way he sets up for shots. Yeah. They never sort of come together as feet. They're always good space. And I wanted all the kids to see that. So I would, you know, I would always stop and show them, watch him. That's how you got to move. That's mm-hmm. how your feet are supposed to work. And um, with Nick, is he still around? What's his role? I've been reading his daily columns. I haven't seen his face out here at Wimbledon, but what's his role there? Are you guys still in cahoots? Yes, his role is, is um, I mean, he, he's Nick Politeri, Yeah, and he's got all kinds of energy, and he still walks out there, and he talks to the uh, – he talks to – the kids um especially right now in the summer where we have campers so it's all new kids every week so he gives them a little nick speech cool. gets them fired up he's still i mean he's, he's 88 years old and he's a, amazing the kind of energy that he brings Do the kids get it Do they know this how legendary this guy I is. i don't know that one part i'm not sure but i think uh, i mean uh, their parents know yeah. so i know their parents are around and they know but i'm not sure about the kids yeah Do you have a few minutes to talk about what's going on here at wimbledon on the uh Men's side? She wanted us for oh, something. Really? Yeah, we got a couple minutes, so that's okay. good. Um, geez, Federer and Nadal, big three domination. It just won't stop. What is your take on this? My take is I can't understand it, to be honest, how you can be that good that long because of all the strain that this sport puts on you mentally, physically, um, emotionally, the travel. You know, so I, these people are superhuman, these three that we're talking about. And what's strange to me is they're actually widening the gap, seemingly, it seems from the like rest it, right? of the tour. So that part's also, I mean, I, I just, it's hard to believe, but it's definitely happening. Yeah, and thoughts on the Federer and Nadal semifinal here at Wimbledon? What's funny is before the tournament started, I had to do, for Tennis Channel, I had to do a prediction of who I thought would win the tournament who would be a good dark horse that could make the second week that's not ranked high, and who would the busts be? I did okay with the busts because I picked Osaka and Kevin Anderson. Yeah. The winner, I picked Pliskova on the women. That didn't I work out. I had her going deep. That didn't go for me. Um, on the men's side, I picked Djokovic, but I really wanted to pick Nadal. Be- but because he had Kyrgios in the second round, I got a little scared of that pick. I feel as though it's going to be Nadal – Djokovic final and I think Nadal's gonna win you like what you see from Rafa on the grass last year he was good as well yeah I mean the way he played the reason I liked him was the way he played at the French was I know he wanted you know just like he did every other time but he played more aggressively he was hitting the stepping in hitting it a little flatter the type of stuff you have to do here so I knew hey that's gonna translate wherever he goes and he was so he was a joke how good he was at, at Roland Garros this year oh my god goodness well jimmy harris i really thank you for your time we got it we got to cut it short but hopefully we can do this again okay congrats on the new gig and enjoy the rest of wimbledon (laughs) thanks partner thank you this edition of the lucky let cord podcast is a wrap special thanks to jimmy arias for joining the program and sharing his tremendous insights on his tennis career and the future of things at img academy you can also find him on tennis channel and on ESPN, he'll be commentating for them throughout the summer. Uh, so a very cool interview, a very interesting interview. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And now we get back to the tennis. 
Women's semifinals underway today. Tomorrow, men's semifinals. We will be speaking with Tennis Hall of Famer Steve Flink after tomorrow's semifinals. So make sure you listen to tomorrow's podcast as well. And for now, enjoy the tennis, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening.